It's quilted to wrap stronger and seal tighter. Very convenient. Hi, welcome to Brand Science, Episode 2. I trust you're doing well, and hopefully your age, your group, your category are coming up soon for a vaccine so we can all claw our way back to some sort of normalcy. I got my AstraZeneca on March 13th in Toronto, and I'm of the mindset that whatever vaccine is approved and offered first, grab it. This podcast is recorded at Radio Radio Studio in Toronto, Canada, and right now the numbers are spiraling out of control in Ontario and in the Toronto area. We're in a lockdown mode, but frankly, I don't see any difference this week versus last week. But I do see people continuing to gather outside in more than advised numbers, mixing households, no masks. I know it's been over a year. It's tough. But vaccines are not going to do it by themselves. We need distancing. We need mass mobile vaccine clinics and meatpacking plants and warehouses in hard-hit areas. We need extra buses on factory routes where currently people are packed into buses like sardines. That's my rant. Let's get on with today's brand science. The election in the United States last year raised a lot of eyebrows as it exposed huge gaps in ideologies and a serious defect in education. But more importantly, it shone a bright spotlight on moral disparities and how individuals used social media to drive their particular truth. It goes beyond party preference and veers into issues like anti-vaxxing and anti-masking as they relate to personal freedoms. Here in Canada, I've watched friends who I previously thought were sane rail on in their Facebook accounts about, in quotation marks, the myth of coronavirus and how the numbers weren't real. How could they possibly stray so far off into left field? This sort of false narrative is commonly attributed to social media. When one person has a crazy opinion, they're deemed crazy. When several get together, it breeds bravery and creates a false legitimacy of their misguided beliefs. The world is flat because I have 20 Facebook friends who agree with me. This takes us to today's interview with Dennis Garces. Dennis is a social digital entrepreneur. Let's hear the interview now. All right, with me today, uh, a gentleman who has uh, a lot of accomplishments. We've got two paragraphs worth of stuff. You've been a very busy guy, Dennis. Uh, the Globe and Mail, Billboard Magazine, RPM, Rolling Stone, and AllBusiness.com have all sang your praises. Uh, you are a serial entrepreneur. You've been involved in several startups, uh, several successful companies and private acquisitions. Also, the reason that you and I uh, sort of crossed paths is that we were both in the music industry at some point, and you much more than me. I was just the the idiot that played the records. You were the guy that actually promoted and marketed, and you worked with uh, Polygram, Universal, Sony, BMG, and uh, Somerset Group. And uh, that's a conversation I want to have with you as a, as a separate conversation, possibly even a separate podcast, uh, your involvement in the music industry, because it has changed so substantially. And you and I go back uh, more years than I care to, to admit <laughs> in terms of uh, what the industry has, has gone from and to. So I hope we can talk about that as a separate issue uh, on another day. Uh, today, I want to talk about your involvement in social digital marketing. One of the things that I was very curious about was your participation in uh, Rock the Vote, which uh, was a nonpartisan venture. Can you tell me a little bit about Rock the Vote? Yes. Um, well, Rock the Vote is um, an initiative, a non, as, as you just said, a nonpartisan initiative um, 
in the United States uh, with the with the basic uh, premise is that they're looking to get young voters uh, to to register and vote in the in the U.S. elections. Uh, one of the things that has been long recognized over the years is that uh, that uh, uh, young voters uh, have not uh, participated in elections and. One of the things that they obviously they think is an important uh, element is having people's voices heard, and uh, so the, uh, it started. Uh, it started a number of years ago. We we I got involved with it, and uh, my my colleagues got involved with it uh, back in 2008 for the first time, and uh, as well as in 2012, uh, just around the U.S. elections. Um, we weren't uh, we weren't available for 2016. Um, we were tied up uh, in other things, so we weren't able to participate in that one. But uh, you know, but uh, having had the experience in the last uh, the 08 and the uh, 2012 uh, U.S. elections was uh, you know helping young voters register was uh, I want to say uh, quite a humbling and and, and uh, uh, proud moment in my career. Well, what takeaways did you uh, take from that? Did you find that there was a, a large young population that were not making it out to vote. Obviously, AT&T felt that that was the case. Is that what uh, conclusively uh, showed up after uh, this campaign? Well, it, well, one of the things uh, that, that really uh, struck me, and uh, this actually came from um, some of our teams that were involved in, in uh, creating content for the social uh, component of our campaign. Uh, we sent out uh, teams to go not only uh, participate in the Democratic and Republic uh, National Conventions, but we also had, because we were involved, uh, Rock the Vote involved itself with a lot of uh, recording artists. Um, and recording artists were doing a lot of things as well to encourage the vote, uh, to get young people to vote out. Um, one of the examples that sort of struck me um, as one of the most memorable ones, we had uh, one member of our team uh, go on the road with the Beastie Boys uh, for, I think, almost a month uh, on their tour bus uh, or traveled with them. I wasn't sure if it was their tour bus or he was on an adjacent media bus. He never really told me the full story, but basically he was on tour with them as they, uh, as they uh, were at the colleges and universities throughout the U S and he recorded them, you know, uh, again, with all their activities around rock the vote, encouraging young voters. And the thing that struck me when we were looking through the raw footage was that, you know, people, the, the connection to pop culture, obviously, you know, one of the reasons that rock the vote was so successful is that, it was able to leverage its its uh, the celebrity or the connectivity that that young people have with artists and with music, and be able to start a conversation, uh, a conversation which, you know, maybe for many uh, had not been had to the, to that point, and it got them engaging in and participating in issues. And I think that that was something that really struck me. And and you know, with with artists such as the Beastie Boys, um, you know, I, I will say that you know uh, whether you're a fan of their music, whether you you know. You think they're just a bunch of silly guys who just, you know, got away with, uh, you know, got away with uh, being silly and, and, and making money. Um, I'll tell you this. They were very passionate. They were very engaged and they they really brought uh, a connection um, in a lot of ways to that to that key target, you know, audience that, that really rocked what was about. And I think that those some of those interviews and some of those uh, activities in which you used to see them um, engaging with with uh, college and university students really resonated with me because it really, it really indicated to me that, that their message, which was falling, I don't know if it was falling on deaf ears or was not being even paid attention to, uh, was brought to light uh, because of people like them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting that some of the music uh, personalities uh, out there, uh, their involvement in politics and, and some of these people that you would think uh, would be the last people who would be mm-hmm. politically involved. And you look at, uh, um, uh, oh, what was the, the, the guy's name? Motor City Madman, uh, Ted Nugent. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yes. Yeah, and, very, very, very much so. Ted and, and the NRA are uh, very uh, well entwined. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other guy who uh, he was uh, married to Pamela Anderson for a while, Kid Rock. Kid Rock, yes. Uh, very politically involved. But I think both of those guys are a little more right leaning. I mean, you think yeah. rock stars. Uh, yeah, but then you've got you got. Uh, and again, this is, you know, this is stuff I learned at the, the DNC uh, and the RNC. So uh, Latino artist Daddy Yankee was a Republican. Hmm. Um, I, I learned that, you know, Rage Against the Machine hated everybody, but was extremely, uh, they participated in both conventions, by the way, uh, not in a good way, not in a, not in a supportive way to either mm-hmm. one of them. But, um, mm-hmm. again, you know, uh, talking about extremely educated, um, uh, individuals who, who wanted to articulate, you know, their displeasure or their, you know, support of certain issues. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you've got, you've, you know, you've got, um, You've got people like Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, you know, guys like that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, not only opinionated, but I'm going to say educated, uh, in politics, uh, mm-hmm. musicians and artists out there, uh, you know, and, and I'm not going to demean artists who aren't, you know, maybe, uh, I'm not saying that you have to have a political science degree to, to, to have an intelligent thing to say as an artist. I mean, you have to be passionate and I think you have to have to have something to believe in. I mean, that's why even artists like Taylor Swift, you know, are out making statements right now, um, to their fans. And, you know, I think, I, and again, not trying to be partisan one way or the other, but obviously, you know, trying to highlight issues, which I think is, is, is a, I think it's any celebrity, um, you know, it's, it's a, res- I don't know if it's a responsibility, but it's definitely something that's, I, I, you know, very important to them. It's also a calculated risk because, uh, uh, Taylor Swift uh, is obviously heavily supporting the, uh, uh, the Democrats. And uh, uh, she is uh, in with uh, both feet. Uh, she's uh, really going hardcore. And, uh, well, you know, good for her for being politically involved and, uh, and taking a stand. You know, it's easy to sit on the wall and uh, uh, watch the money come in and not really commit to uh, anything. So good for her. Yeah. Um, I read that Obama, and again, you and I talked about this uh, beforehand, uh, and you don't uh, purport to be uh, an expert in uh, uh, political social politics, but I do want to get your uh, opinion in in terms of the extent that you have been involved. I I read that um, uh, Obama in 2008, he excelled because of his team's mastery over digital and social. John McCain uh, did not have the same understanding of of, uh, the importance of this. He was too busy uh, dealing with... uh, uh, his uh, vice presidential candidate and, uh, and some of the things that, were, that uh, he was juggling at the time. But tell me about Obama uh, and his digital team. And what are your thoughts in terms of was that a, a key reason that he won the 2008 election? Uh, you know, again, I, I, I think digital, uh, if, if digital was to ever say that it made its debut in a, in a meaningful way, uh, it was 2008 in the, in the U.S. election. And social uh, became... Um, not only a new force, uh, became a substantial force and, and to some, based on their opinion, might have been the deciding force, um, in the election. And I, and I do believe since then, whether you talk 2008, 2012, and even I will say 2016, social has made 
and digital and communication through that platform and those mediums has made a significant impact to the point that, yes, I mean, you could say the television still can make that same kind of uh, effect and change on an, an outcome or election. I certainly believe that uh, social uh, has earned that and, and is definitely entrenched in that same, in that same uh, level of uh, meaningfulness. Yeah, you remember the story, uh, uh, of course, the, the first television uh, debate. It was Kennedy and Nixon. And they said that Kennedy was a, a television president and Nixon was not. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kennedy uh, uh, obviously beat Nixon that year because uh, Nixon was perspiring heavily and looked uh, – he didn't look like a president. And that was 1960. And now we go ahead uh, 2008. Now here we are in 2020. And we're looking back uh, over the last 10 or 12 years uh, on the impact that Twitter and Facebook have had on uh, products and candidates. Can you give me your thoughts on, on Twitter and Facebook and both of them playing a prominent role in digital persuasion? And I want to get your thoughts on what influence Facebook and Twitter have had uh, in the past couple of elections uh, in, in terms of digital trolls and so forth. Well, you know, when you, when I think of those platforms, you know, and I, I think of the term and the way that people describe technology and, and technology is, you know, neither good nor evil. It, it's it's the way that it's applied. And, you know, when I, when I look at those, those again, their mediums are channels. They're just channels in which have, have been able to garner large audiences. Um, and because of that, there's there's eyeballs and ears paying attention to them and to the, to the messages being conveyed on there. So it's the ability you know, for whether you call it technology and bots and, and, you know, or, or companies and bad actors, um, you know, or even good people to, to be able to get their message across. It's about finding a way to, to cut through the clutter, uh, to get heard and to find those audiences, um, in which not only are they going to hear your message, the key difference between a lot of other mediums, um, whether it be television, print, um, et cetera, and social media is. Social media works on the same premise as um, I like to call the wor- most most powerful form of marketing, which is word of mouth. Social works in that same way, except it's accelerated by technology. And when you accelerate it by technology, you allow, obviously, to reach that larger audience. But at the same time, you know, it, it's the same thing as, you know, riding a bicycle if you if you tweak your uh, steering wheel just a little bit off and you're going, you know, two, two kilometers an hour, okay, you'll wobble a little bit. If you're driving a high performance sports car and you do the same thing on a, on a, on a steering wheel, you're dead because the car just wild, wilds careenly out of control. Um, same thing with social. If the message, you know, gets picked up in the wrong way, things can wildly careen out of control. Um, and I think it's so important that, that people understand um, that everything that they see, I mean, you know, whether is not necessarily true. In fact, um, I think the ability and I think the, the, the mistake that a lot of people make right now is that they're looking at their, that they're looking at things, um, the hearsay and the conjecture through the same level as, as journalism. Um, and we need to, we need to understand that there is a difference between journalism, um, and, and hearsay. And the, the problem is right now, um, you know, hearsay is, is guising itself as journalism and journalism is under fire to be and, and accused of being as hearsay. So, uh, both are under, you know, one is under attack and the other one is, is, is posing to be something it's not. 
um, creating a lot of confusion with the audiences. So, you know, very powerful tools, um, you know, can be used for good, uh, you know, hoping it's being used for good, but we also seen it used uh, for the, for the wrong purposes as well. It's interesting you say that because we look at, at digital brands right now in terms of the people who are controlling them. Uh, just up the street from me in my neighborhood here in uh, Leslieville in Toronto, there's our, there are posters uh, and uh, they call it uh, information media theft. And they've got a giant picture of uh, Mr. Facebook and uh, they have these captions and there is actually uh, uh, a group out there right now that are uh, trying to gain uh, some sort of momentum in terms of going after Facebook and getting them to be more arbiters of, of truth. Jack Dorsey of Twitter mm-hmm. started tagging Donald Trump's questionable posts with get the facts mm-hmm. and linking the sites with accurate information pertaining to his tweets. Mm-hmm. Uh, should governments impose controls on, on uh, various aspects of this? Uh, I'm curious myself, what do you think about governments getting involved like the CRTC did with radio and television where they oversee all the content that goes out there. Right now, the internet is still a wild west. Anybody can post anything with uh, virtually no control. What are your thoughts about the government getting involved and being a bit of a filter? You know, it, it's it's a dangerous. I mean, again, we you know you can liken things to being Orwellian in 1984 and you know being over policed. Uh, but at the same time, as you said, you know, a wild wild west and self policing. You know is not also potentially a, a solution. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult one, you know, qu- quite frankly. And, you know, I would, I would like to hope that uh, society as a whole uh, would be able to self-police, but you know, what, what has, what has only emerged is that the extremists seem to get heard uh, on both ends of the spectrum and, and the moderates, you know, get, get crushed um, because their messages aren't controversial or exciting enough. We live in a world of sensationalism right now. You know, we live in a world where when you stick out is that's when you get noticed, good and bad. Um, and, you know, the moderate messages get lost or get get viewed as old school. So, you know, it's it's a difficult thing right now. I, I do believe in the basic premise that, you know, um, I call it being a human being, um, of being you can have different opinions, but be kind. You can have different you, you can you can disagree with someone, but not be hateful, um, you know, and. and to me, that's, it's not really about a law. <laughs> it's to me about a, a sense of morality or a sense of, a, a sense of uh, realization that none of us are above reports or none of us are above making mistakes. But, you know, we, we, sh- we, every, people should have an opportunity to be heard. That's one of the, that's one of the compelling things about social. It, that it allows, and it has made, I mean, look at, look at, we, we think about YouTube stars. We think about, we think about social influencers. We think about, you know, young mothers who've been able to generate and create incomes for their families um, by being, you know, by expressing their opinions. Um, those are wonderful things and wonderful products of social. Um, unfortunately, too, there's the, the, that same, it also gives the same platform and same um, place to be heard for hate and for other negative messages. So, you know, it, again, as I said earlier, it's not the technology which is evil. Um, it's the people that, that make those decisions, you know, based on, on their moral or lack of moral compass, um, you know, and it's, and it's difficult because, you know, where, at what point does it start turn, feeling like censorship? Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, I think, you know, having different, you know, different points of view expressed within a, within a conversation or within a forum or within, you know, a platform, I think is healthy. 
Um, if we all if we all agreed with one another, then there, you know there probably wouldn't be a need for social because we'd all know what each other was thinking. But in in this in this term, I think as long as we abide by the levels of code of conduct of respect and and uh, you know not fostering hate, um, you know opinion is opinion. I, you know and and for that, you know uh, you know I, I I don't believe governments uh, should should be censoring or controlling that. Mm-hmm. You've got a very generous opinion of the uh, the nature of of mankind. <laughs> I, I'm I'm hopeful. How's that? I'm, I'm hopeful. Somewhere between uh, what you're saying and, and the reality has got to be a a place that we can all uh, uh, get along. Jack Dorsey, as I mentioned, started tagging Donald Trump's tweets. What would you think about? I'm just spitballing here. What would you think about? Uh, Facebook and Twitter and major social platforms putting some sort of filters or, or uh, something attached to it that basically fact checks everything that goes out so that in I'm going back to this, uh, this anti-vax movement mm-hmm. that was on before COVID. And now uh, I thought people would know better. And now I'm seeing a, a, a movement to talk about, avoiding getting vaccines for COVID-19, let alone for common flus and all the other things that uh, the anti-vaxxers have an issue with. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is obviously, some would say this is an opinion and and uh, they should be allowed their opinion. I suppose they should. But uh, again, they're calling up facts from sites that uh, have a, a definite vested uh, agenda. And I'd like to see all of these articles from these obscure uh, news sites that they pull up. I'd like to see every article vetted in Snopes or, or some sort of filter site mm-hmm. uh, so that we're dealing with facts. I, I guess the question is, and, and this is, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that I agree or endorse anti-vaxxers. In fact, um, I, I recently watched a, sh- on a show, I think it was released a few years ago on Netflix called Pandemic, which there was a section on anti-vaxxers and uh, um, it made me crazy. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to probably sound smug and, and, and maybe to the upset of some people based on their opinions. But, you know, I, I, I'd like to say that, you know, anti-vaxxers, well, you know, I think there'll be a bit of social Darwinism happening with that eventually. So, um, we, you know, I'd like to, you know, like to put that out there. But uh, I think in all seriousness, um, the, the, the challenge and I think the difference, you know, between having an opinion, you and I can have different opinions. You can like red and I can like blue. Um that's an opinion. Um, but if my opinion puts your health at risk, that's not an opinion anymore. So mm-hmm. that's, that's where I draw the line. And I think, you know, when you, when you think about things like that, um, but the problem is, and I think when you talk about, you know, talk about Jack Dorsey and fact checking, it's a dangerous and slippery slope. And, 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 and the slippery slope that I, that I worry about in, in those kind of situations is if, listen, fact checking. Absolutely. Things should be fact checked. At what point do you draw the line? At what point does all of a sudden, you know, you, you state something and someone wants to feel that the fact check it should be the other way as well, that the quote unquote, you know, uh, popularly regarded traditional science, all of a sudden Chinese medicine is going to contradict some of the stuff that, that traditional Western medicine has. And we need to fact check against that. Where, what is the benchmark? Because I don't, I don't, I don't, I still think there's still going to be a disagreement on what the benchmark is going to be to check against. Yeah. Um, again, I keep uh, calling back to Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg, 
who uh, neither one of them are saints, but it seems like Jack Dorsey has a, a bit of a conscience. But I think the the um, uh, the bigger dilemma is that Mark Zuckerberg refuses to to acknowledge that Facebook is a media outlet. For him, he's saying we're just a delivery platform and people upload stuff and uh, uh, have at it. Now, he is pulling some things down uh, uh, recently that uh, we're advising uh, people to gargle Drano and, and, you know, ridiculous things like that, which they did feel some moral responsibility to pull off of their platform. But uh, it does seem like uh, Facebook wants nothing to do with politics or uh, anything that's going to draw them into a uh, responsibility that could affect stock prices. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Twitter does seem to be uh, a little more uh, involved in terms of taking a stand on things. Well, I think the challenge that Facebook is, is facing when 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 Mark says that he you know, he he's uh, not media, I, I have to some ways agree with him in, in the sense that you know he's not Facebook is not. Um, so, well, at least to me, the understanding of what Facebook is, Facebook is a platform in which you can express your, your, your material, your content. Um, it isn't a content creator, um, like, a, like a news broadcaster or, or a media outlet, so I guess, so to speak. So in that way, I think that's the line he wants to distinguish himself. He's a, you know, they're, they're, they're a channel um, on your social media dial that you can tune into as you can with Instagram, as you can with LinkedIn, as you can with Twitter. Um, and it's a method to receive information from others, not their information. It's not Facebook's information. I think the challenge is that people don't understand that it's not Facebook's information when they get it on Facebook. Um, and that's where the confusion lies. Um, and that, that is a significant difference. And, you know, I think that's, you know, that's the, that's the distinguishing, I think that, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg wants to, uh, to, to make. Um, and, but Jack, I mean, again, you know, I don't know him personally and won't, you know, speak to his moral compass, but I, you know, but I have to say that, you know, when something is stated, which is uh, potentially dangerous to a population or to a people, um, you know, not being able to, 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 uh, to put a flag on, or at least uh, point out to people that there's something that you should think about before completely swallowing something whole. You know, it's 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 commendable, but it's also potentially, you know, again, um, dangerous to the point that you know it, it could it could result in in fact checking everything, and then mm -hmm. that that potentially being you know that that intent being lost um, in in you know all of a sudden that every tweet is fact checked, um, um, even the ones which, quite honestly, to all of us may be obvious, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so. Anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know whether this is outlandish on my part, but I would just like to see a disclaimer uh, on Facebook somewhere uh, that is evident. So when you sign in, uh, please note that the uh, posts have not been verified. Uh, please make your own opinions and uh, uh, form your own judgments based on on research and that some some elements have been posted on this medium, which we cannot verify uh, the truth uh, that to me would be one small step towards hopefully uh, educating people to know that just because it shows up on Facebook does not mean it's true. And Tim, and you know, I'm, as you called me generous earlier, I'm going to say that you're very generous to think that that will actually um, affect people. Um, you know, I, I would believe, and I would potentially without even knowing this as a, as a general fact, 
I, I would probably believe that's in the current terms and conditions of Facebook. Um, it's probably in there. I mean, how many of us have read it? Probably next to zero. Um, you know, I bet it's in there. As your role as a uh, uh, entrepreneur mm-hmm. and the companies that you've been involved with, um, uh, tell me about how you uh, how you were able to uh, essentially have your people go into social environments and change the conversation. We talk about the influence of social media, and we see a bunch of posts, and they kind of take things into a, a, a direction. And people their their tempers are uh, inflamed. Somebody had a bad experience, and they start vetting on social media about a particular company. Uh, tell me how your uh, experience in the past has been able to regenerate and change the conversation uh, in, in a positive way? Well, uh, you know, again, a lot of the work I've done uh, has, has not always been about changing the conversation. Um, what we what we like to do and in, in the process that I've been involved in um, through social has been really taking branded content from a client and really finding the, the, the places on the, on, in social where in which people are already having discussions about that, about that brand, that topic, that, that, that community of interest. Um, and they're having those conversations in, in the sense that they're, they're, they're looking to find out more information. They're, they're already thinking that um, this is something that's of interest to them and they're looking for more content. Um, that's the kind of space that we provide the content in. We, we, we um, and especially for our brands, uh, we don't, we don't like to drop uh, content on behalf of brand in any volatile um, in any volatile social environment, especially even, for example, I mean, if, if somebody, you know, even didn't like their competition, say, you know, their competitive brand, you know, we would never encourage a brand to drop into a hostile conversation, even if it was about their competitors. Um, mm-hmm. you know, um, we have been involved in brand uh, situations where, you know, brands have had their own level of controversy and we put content up and, um, someone has responded negatively, um, you know, to those situations, but we found, and this is the part of, of social, which, which sometimes makes brands uncomfortable, but it is the way the social works. Um, you have to, it's, it's a platform, as we said earlier, it's a platform for people to express their opinions. Um, in the cases where we've had, uh, you know, people express negative, I, I can say probably in the 15 years I've been doing this, probably less than 1% of the campaigns, um, no, actually, in all situations, except for less than 1% of the campaigns were in which um, the community actually responded and supported the brand. Um, and before the brand could even respond, before, and I'm talking about, we've been in situations where we've had someone post something negative. We went to the brand within the hour, talked about a strategy, went back to post something and realized the community had jumped to the defense of the brand. Wow. So that's the wonderful thing. I mean, and again, that's when you start out in a situation or a forum uh, in which people are already talking positively about the brand or the or the general category that you're talking about. You know, you're not you're not finding the naysayers. You're looking for you're looking ultimately and how our our, our process of, of marketing has always worked, leveraging social. It, it's not about, you know, ha- us having 10,000 people who see content everywhere. It's about knowing exactly where the right places to have these conversations, to see this content, to start the conversation, and ultimately let the consumer and let the fan and let the let the advocate of that uh, of that uh, that idea, that product, um, share it with their friends. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, you and I are old enough to remember a 
commercial, which, you know, the, the saying said, I told two friends and, she, and he told two friends and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. That's the premise that we work with. Um, you know, yeah. that's how amplification and content sharing uh, happen. I mean, that's how things go viral. It's not because a company spends millions of dollars, um, you know, seeding this everywhere. It's, you know, I, I've always, I've always believed that, you know, a message cannot go viral if no one wants to share it. Um, you know, and a virus needs a host. Um, so, yes. <laughs> so in order to spread, so, um, I know it's very, uh, maybe in given COVID-19, maybe not be the best, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's true. You know, it's interesting. We look at social media and think of it as this new fangled way of marketing, but social media is basically just an extension of public relations. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and you mentioned, uh, uh, word of mouth being the most powerful sale tool. Uh, I know from experience with the brands that I've worked with, our most powerful selling tool, bar none, you know, are testimonials. Mm -hmm. People who have successfully uh, used said product or service and were happy to post about it. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's really what, and if you think about what, what are micro-influencers, what are nano-influencers, what are influencers you know, in general? They're people who are saying a positive thing about a brand or experience and they're sharing it with their quote unquote friends. Now, you know, the definition of friends has changed over the years. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had the pleasure of, in one of, one of uh, there were companies I was involved with very early on um, in a survey, uh, which a large uh, company was doing. Uh, and they were asking questions, you know, about social and technology. And we were allowed to put one of our questions in it. And uh, the response was really eye-opening for us. And the question what we asked was, uh, how, how many friends do you have? And what we really learned through this, and this we did this survey, I think, in 2006, 2007, when we participated in it. It mm -hmm. was already, and I think of those, that was still fairly early days in social, that the average person, and I'm, I'm going to draw it off my memory, so I might be a little bit off on some of the number breakdown. But the average fact, person don't worry. had 54 friends. Wow. Um, six were close, 10 to 12 were so, uh, acquaintances, and the rest, this was the most shocking insight for us, the rest were people they'd actually never met in person. Hmm. So which really spoke to the power of social and what a quote-unquote friend is. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone makes a friend, and if you think about it, I mean, maybe you're different social platforms, you have different levels of connections, but how many friends do you have on LinkedIn that you are truly someone you, you know, would know in a, in a very personal way. You know, yeah. I think we, we utilize and, and, and that term friend now, um, even in, even in Facebook, I mean, there are people who are probably closer to you and people who are more acquaintances. You'd call yeah. acquaintances in, in, in the old school term. Um, yeah. and I, but I think, but, you know, and, and I've, and I've said this, you know, and why I think, um, you know, social, social influencer marketing and amplification is, is such a powerful tool is because, it's, it's now getting a recommendation from a friend. And I say this, how many times have you made a decision uh, based on a rec uh, travel decision based on a recommendation from a stranger? Most people say, no, I haven't. And I said, well, you ever use TripAdvisor? Yes, mm -hmm. you have. Have yeah. you ever made a decision going to a restaurant based on a recommendation from a stranger? No, I only trust my friends. Well, I guess you've never used Yelp. You know, mm -hmm. all these things, all these platforms, we are listing what are, what are Google five-star reviews? What are all these things? These are recommendations from friends or from, you know, people who we believe are trusted within our community. Mm -hmm. And 
if you think in that term, you know, the, the, the redefinition or the, you know, the expansion of what the term friend means, means someone who's a person of influence to you. You know, what surprised me over the last few years is uh, Instagram and how uh, integral it's become in the hospitality industry. Uh, I went out with a friend. They finally opened up the uh, farmer's market at uh, Brickworks here in Toronto last weekend. We went there and everything was all fenced off and and everyone was masked up. But there was this one older gentleman who uh, sort of approached to set the fence. And uh, and uh, uh, he asked us, how do we know that uh, the market was back on? We said, well, we saw it on uh, Instagram. And uh, he said, uh, Instagram, I guess I should figure out more about that. And we said, well, you don't have an account? No, no, but, you know, my granddaughter's going to set something up for me. You know, it was just, it was delightful because it was so old school and he was so unsophisticated. But literally all the, the restaurants, the, the, uh, uh, the bakeries, all the places that we're interested in, we follow on, uh, on Twitter and we find out when they're reopening. We find out what's on special and the new closing hours, all of that communicating through, through one social medium. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it, it's absolutely. And, and again, you know, I think, I think, um, depending on the category and food, I think in rest, hospitality is, is one of them, you know, how, what, what the phenomenon now is we all take pictures of our food. In fact, we take pictures of our food before we eat it, which means the food, the, the, the visual stimulation seems more important than the actual satiation, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of amusing to me. But if you think about it, you know, that's, that's become a cultural thing. Um, you know, so, that that sort of uh, whether you want to call it food porn, whether you want to be call it you know um, you know creating that uh, uh, an image of your lifestyle um, that you live apparently because you go to these you know these fancy restaurants and eat this wonderful exotic food um, and it it almost becomes a, an extension of your personality or, or of who you are as a person you know yeah. Yeah, you know, hence why I'm very careful on who follows me on Instagram because I don't want people thinking, you know, that oh, this is all he does. He only eats. Um, but you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, but you know, it. But it is. It, it does become a, a reflection of of whether whether you want to call it of of status, of you know, it, it becomes a, a reflection of of image of you know of PR in a lot of ways of yeah who, yeah who, who we are as individuals. Yeah, yeah, and how people can use their social accounts to basically paint their personal brand, they create their own reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, look, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate your your time, Dennis, and I would like to have you back to talk about the music industry. I think that's a topic all into itself. Oh yeah, and it'll give us both an excuse to feel really old. Oh and, boy, uh, <laughs> are we going to start figuring out who we know? This is the, that'll be the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. That, that'll that's be- right. That's right. That's right. And here's the teaser. Uh, Dennis was involved in, uh, uh, was it Big Shiny Tunes? What, what was yeah, the couple? That one, Much Dance, a few a few of the big compilations uh, Much Music did. Yeah. Very good. Right, we're going to talk about that in future. So uh, come back and, and check that out. In the meantime, Dennis, thank you so much for your thoughts. And uh, have a great day. All right. Thank you. Take care. That was Dennis Garces, a Toronto-based social digital entrepreneur, speaking on social influence in the digital era. Coming up next time on Brand Science, I talk with a longtime friend and one of the most talented voice artists I know. The voice of Tony the Tiger, countless animated features and commercials, and also one of the identity voices of CBC Radio and Television in Canada, Tony Daniels. Please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. 
and look for Brand Science Podcast on YouTube. Our website, brandsciencepodcast.com. I'm Tim McClarty.